Welcome to the Pants Cast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like if casual and cool had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. Cancer. According to the Canadian Cancer Society, nearly one in two Canadians will develop the disease during their lifetime. But we are learning of new ways to combat the disease. And one day... These advancements may help us to prevent cancer from occurring altogether. This week, we're focusing on the fight against cancer, now and into the future. We're going to hear about new emerging treatments and how they may be used not only to fight cancer, but prevent it in the form of a vaccine. And in our SAS class, you're going to find out that stem cell therapy may one day be a cure. But for now, it's more like a dream waiting to happen. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I want us all to stand up to cancer. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. It is estimated that in 2019, on average, 604 Canadians will be diagnosed with cancer every day. I don't need to tell you how important it is to fight against it. If you haven't already been affected by it, you probably know someone who has. But there is some good news. In the last decade, there has been an incredible rise in the number of treatments coming out of the laboratory. Many of them not only work in animals, but humans as well. And as for the new weapons we're using to fight this disease, they may surprise you. Viruses, immune regulators, and soon, stem cells. Granted, There's no straight-up cure. But the hope is that in the future, we will be able to beat all cancers much the same way we deal with infections. With vaccines. Our first guest has been leading the way in developing innovative treatments to fight cancer. His name is John Bell, and he is a senior cancer researcher at the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute. His first accomplishments were made not using chemotherapy or radiation, but by using a biological organism most of us know well, although perhaps do not like, a virus. What is cancer at the biological level? So it, cancer is a really challenging disease because what it is is actually a disease of our own, our own tissues, our own body. So what happens over the life of a patient, a variety of things can happen to them. They can get maybe have too much sun, perhaps they smoke. Or perhaps they just have bad luck, and that's certainly a big factor in, in how cancers arise. And what happens is that an individual cell within your body acquires a mutation, and these mutations we now know uh, have something to do with how well a cell lives and dies. And we know there are certain genes which say it's time to grow, and there's actually other genes that say it's time for an individual cell to die. And what often happens in cancer is that those genes which are involved in cell death 
the cell death genes get mutated and they then then that cell no longer remembers how to die and so it grows uncontrolled so the real challenge is that you now have something that's your own tissue uh, which has just lost its growth control mechanisms. And so trying to find a therapeutic to identify that and attack is very difficult. I guess that's probably the reason for using a virus, considering that's exactly what they do. They kill cells, although normally it's the ones we want to keep. Uh, was this why you looked at viruses as a means to treat cancer? Yeah, in part, we, we had done a lot of work looking at what genes are involved in the cancer process. And what we discovered is that some of the genes that are involved in the, uh, in the death of cells also control the ability of individual cells to fight virus infections. And as you point out, we're constantly being uh, infected by viruses. They're always trying to you know, infect us and parasitize our cells. But we have great defense mechanisms to keep that from happening. In the case of cancer, however, because a cancer becomes immortal, it, it never dies, it doesn't know how to die anymore, it also forgets how to fight virus infections. And so it's uniquely sensitive. And so what we do is create viruses that can parasitize uh, selectively a cancer cell, infect it, and hopefully destroy it. Now, of course, we don't have cancer-killing viruses that we knew of. We had to develop them. So take us through the process of how you developed a cancer-killing virus. Sure, and, and actually, uh, Jason, just to tell you, in fact, there, there probably are some natural cancer-killing viruses out there. We, there's anecdotal evidence uh, that almost any doctor will tell you about of a patient who's, who's had the, a very bad flu or something, and then they've gone into remission. So that sort of told us, hey, there probably is something there. We just have to figure out how to make it happen more frequently. So what we did is we went out to the world and we screened for viruses which had an inherent ability to infect and kill cancer cells. And then we engineered them and made them even more selective. So these viruses cannot grow in any normal tissue. We've, we've changed their genetic information so that when they enter a normal cell, they're killed off. But when they enter a cancer cell, they're able to actually replicate and grow within that cancer cell. So that's how we did it by a combination of what we call bioselection and then genetic engineering. And then to even make it more interesting, we've added certain what we call therapeutic payloads to the virus. So as the virus infects and spreads within the tumor, it may express something like an immune-stimulating gene so that, in fact, the immune system recognizes that cancer is foreign and begins to attack it. If you're saying that these viruses can only attack one kind of tissue, that sounds like you're going to have to have a different virus for every different cancer. Uh, that may be somewhat the case. I, th I think what we do know is that everybody's tumor is as different as everybody is different from each other. So, in fact, there's a lot of what we call heterogeneity in the human population because we are all outbred people. And as you walk down the street, you see people look different. Well, since cancers arise as a change in their genetic information, each person's cancer is also different. And that's part of the real challenge in finding a the therapeutic. What we believe will happen is we'll find different viruses dependent upon how your cancer arose in the first place. So you may, it may be that one virus works in a colon cancer patient and in a prostate cancer patient, but it won't work in another patient just because of how their tumor arose in the first place. We're really deciphering this now by doing more in-depth sequencing of genetic information. So my bet is there'll probably be a half a dozen viruses or more that'll be required to be able to attack all cancers. And if that's the case, it sounds like we're venturing into personalized medicine where you do the genetic testing to find out what it is that's wrong with you, and then either there's a stockpile of viruses or there's a lab that's going to be able to develop a virus that will be specifically geared for your cancer. Is that really where we're heading? 
I think that's absolutely right. We're gonna, we may not get to the point where each person has an individualized virus that's created just for them. That's going to be probably very challenging to do. But what we're going to do is have stables of viruses, and we'll do sequencing of their tumor, and we'll say, ah, based upon the mutation you've got in your particular tumor, we suggest you have virus A, maybe in combination with virus B, whereas another patient will have a different virus combination. So there's no question that we're starting to use our ability to assess genetic information of tumors much more to personalize who gets what treatment, whether it's virus treatment or immunotherapy or other kinds of therapy. We'll get into immunotherapy uh, in a little bit, but I do want to ask you something, and I'm sure that people who are listening are going to wonder, how effective is using a virus when it comes to trying to treat different types of cancers? So I, I would say this field is still in its infancy, despite the fact that we've been working on it for a number of years now, because we're still learning more about cancers. And so I think we don't really appreciate yet the full uh, potential of this kind of uh, therapeutic. We do know there's now one virus that's been approved by the FDA for the treatment of melanoma patients who have advanced diseases. And so I think that there's going to be more of these over the next several years as we begin to get more and more information about how best to engineer them, how best to use them. So we're really still in the learning phase, I think, to some extent. I'm very optimistic that they'll be an important part of cancer therapy in the future, but I can't say right now that they're the, the so-called magic bullet that everybody's looking for. I think it's going to be that they're a, a component of treatments that are going to be used for a, a large number of patients. And that gets me to the next sort of question I hear from listeners, and that is about vaccines. We're, we're always hearing about the idea of vaccines for chronic diseases, and I'm sure that the idea of using a virus to be able to create a vaccine, much like we do see with other virus and pathogens, could possibly be the road to follow. However, it does sound that if we're only in the infancy of treatment, it's going to take us some time to get there. But do you foresee sort of down the road the idea that we may be able to develop viruses that could be used as vaccines, especially if we have that genetic testing in gear so we can predict which people are going to be more likely to get uh, certain types of cancer? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you, you raise a good point, and, and certainly already there are there are vaccines in some sense for cancer. So, for instance, the HPV vaccine, uh, if uh, young boys and girls get that vaccine, that'll prevent them from ever contracting uh, human papillomavirus, and that would then eliminate the onset of many cancers, like cervical cancer for women and head and neck cancers for both men and women. So there, in that sense, it's possible to prevent cancer by vaccination uh, right now to some extent. I think what you're suggesting, though, is are are there therapeutic kinds of vaccines or prophylactic vaccines we can give to someone who we think might get colon cancer? And, and that's a ways off, I think, but there's certainly people working in that direction. What happens when you use an oncolytic virus is it actually infects the, the cancer of that particular patient and creates a vaccine in situ, as we say. It actually creates a vaccine right on the spot where that tumor is because it makes the tumor reveal its antigens to the immune system. So in a way, each person gets a personalized vaccine via treatment with the oncolytic virus. Now, the way that can work more effectively than we are now is, is if we can get those viruses into people earlier on in the treatment uh, paradigm. So when the patient has a very small tumor, Perhaps if we can get the virus in at that point, it'll turn that tumor into a, a vaccine factory right inside the patient. And so I think that's where there's a better chance of this working, where uh, we have a situation where the, uh, the tumor load's small and the virus can have a more effective activation of the immune system against the cancer. So really what we're talking about in this case is getting in there early enough, but we're changing the idea of a vaccine so that we're not preventative, but more or less what we're doing is we're 
putting that red flag on the cancer so that it essentially is targeted for, for death. That's exactly right. And it's also also been identified by that flag as something that is not supposed to be there. And then the immune system says, oh, I'm going to make sure that that never comes back or I'm going to attack right now to eliminate it. So that's really how, how we see this actually uh, playing out. And a lot of work now is toward making these virus therapeutics more what we call immunogenic, more able to stimulate the immune system. When we take a look at the fight against cancer inside our bodies, we find something mysterious and malicious. Unlike many of the diseases we face in which our immune systems simply attack and destroy, cancer has ways to avoid being identified as a target. This is known as immune evasion, and is one of the most troubling problems we face. Cancer becomes invisible to our defenses and can grow undetected by the system that is supposed to keep us safe. This troubling reality has sparked people like John Bell and others to explore ways to improve our immunity so we can find cancer and kill it. It's generally known as immunotherapy, but there are different types that exist. He's working on one of the most promising types for treatment and possibly the development of a vaccine because it helps the immune system find the cancer and kill it before it's too late. One of the things that I find fascinating about our immune system is that it is actually designed to kill cancer. That is true. We have what we call immune surveillance mechanisms where uh, your immune system goes throughout your body looking for problems, things that shouldn't be there. Often that's an infection. Often that's like a bacterial or a virus infection, but it can be other things. We, we have an immune monitoring system going at all times to try to remove defective cells. And cancer certainly is a defective cell, uh, as I mentioned earlier on. And so that, that's certainly a, a way that our immune systems work to keep us from uh, getting cancers to rise in the first place. So what happens is when you're a young person, your immune system is pretty active. It's pretty uh, good at clearing out uh, defective cells and infections. But as you get older, your immune system starts to age as well, and it's less effective at doing that. On top of that, Cancers are, are pretty clever, unfortunately, and they find ways to send out signals to, uh, to hypnotize your immune system and say, don't come over here, uh, stay away from me, I'm actually nothing dangerous. And so really, th there's a combination of your immune system aging and the tumor getting slightly smarter and finding ways to, to curtail your immune system, and that's why cancers eventually are able to, uh, to establish themselves and grow. In fact, many cancers arise, they, they may take 10 years before they're really detectable because they spend a long time finding ways to fight the immune system. So when we get to that point where the cancer is essentially growing out of control, why isn't the immune system simply able to just get rid of it? Can it just turn itself on to a greater extent? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and in fact, it turns out that there's multiple ways that our immune systems are regulated. So you, you've obviously heard of autoimmune diseases, things that actually are not good for us, uh, things like multiple sclerosis and so on, where your immune system begins to attack your normal tissue. We don't want that to happen. So our immune systems have a lot of checks and balances to keep them from being overactive. What cancers do is they figure that out and they use the same pathways that normal cells use to suppress the immune system and they hide from the immune system. So in fact, they're able to hide and, and stay in the body and when the immune cells approach it they'll send out hormones and growth factors to paralyze the immune system so it cannot attack the cancer the real breakthroughs now in immunotherapy is finding new new ways to intervene in that 
in that blockade, finding things that stop the tumor from suppressing the immune system, and then let the immune system in. And once that happens, the immune system's great at clearing out the cancer. It's very, very effective once it's able to get in there and not be paralyzed by the tumor. Now, we know that there are several different types of immunotherapy out there, but the one that seems to be getting the most headlines is something called CAR-T. I'm wondering if you can take us through that, and especially what exactly is CAR-T to begin with? Sure. So your immune system is full of different kinds of immune cells that can be involved in fighting infections. One kind of immune cell you have is called a thymus or T cell. And T cells are are special cells that that roam around your body and look for things like infected sites so they can attack and and clear out infected cells. And so that's really a great way for, for the immune system to surveil your body at all times. It sends these soldiers around looking for infections or perhaps even cancers that are starting to arise. And then those T cells are able to attack the infected area and destroy it. A CAR T cell is when we actually engineer that T cell to be very targeted towards a particular tumor type. So we can actually take T cells out of your body. We can, again, use a virus, a different kind of virus, not a a lytic virus, but one that can be used in gene therapy. And we can add into the T cell uh, what's called a chimeric antigen receptor. That's where the acronym CAR comes from. So it's a chimeric antigen receptor. Ah. It's basically something we create in the lab. It's a, it's a receptor we create in the lab that we put into the T cell so that it now recognizes specifically a, a, a cancer cell. And so where this has been really effective is in certain kinds of leukemia. And what we're able to do is take patients' T cells out. We put in a CAR, a chimeric antigen receptor, that recognizes a protein found on certain kinds of leukemia. In the case, the the most effective one is called CD19, cell determinant 19. This is a protein which is normally expressed in your B cell, but also expressed to high levels on certain kinds of leukemia. And so when you now take T cells out and put this chimeric antigen receptor or CAR on its surface and put it back into the patient, it runs around the body looking for any leukemia that expresses this protein, CD19, and then it attacks and kills it. And this has been incredibly effective in some cases where we see response rates of up to 80 to 90 percent in some kinds of leukemia, which means that the CAR is very effective and is able to attack and kill leukemias in the 80 to 90 percent of the patients. The cure rate is not as high as that, unfortunately, because sometimes the leukemias will will get rid of that CD19 off its surface. That's one way that it's able to escape, and then the car can no longer kill it. So uh, there's still some work to be done here, but what we do know is that some patients do extremely well, appear to be cured of their disease after this kind of treatment, but we still need to build on this and, and get better at doing it, finding ways to avoid uh, the cells getting rid of their CD19 or perhaps targeting another protein on the surface. That sort of gets me a little bit concerned, though, because it sounds like you're constantly playing a game of hide-and-go-seek. You, you create something that can be seen, and then the cancer seems to get smart, maybe, and all of a sudden it hides again. Is this something that you're going to have to see numerous trials or, or numerous types of CAR-T intervention before you finally get clearance? Yeah, I mean, the, the truth is that any kind of cancer therapy it has that challenge in front of it because cancers are able to mutate. Uh, they're able to change their cloak. They find other ways to escape. And that's really why patients often fail chemotherapy is that the tumor gets smart enough to avoid the toxic effects of the chemotherapy. It's the same for immunotherapy. But there is a work around this. There is a way to get around that problem. And that's to use what we call combination approaches where we combine multiple therapies at one time. 
it prevents the tumor from finding a way to escape because it's got it's attacked say on three fronts and it can't mount a, 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 a ability to escape from all three therapies at the same time. This is really the future of, of cancer immunotherapy or cancer therapy in, in, in general. And the idea is to find combinations of therapies that make sense so that the, virus, so that the uh, cancer cell cannot escape and eventually will be eradicated. We, it may not be that the cancer has to be completely eliminated. If we can get the immune system back on track, so that it's always looking again for defective cells. It may be that we can just get it down to a very small amount of cancer in the body and the immune system will keep it from growing out again. So I think that the beauty, the actual brilliance of the immune system is the immune system evolves all the time. So just like the cancer evolves, the immune system can evolve too. It can evolve in lockstep and therefore it'll constantly be fighting the cancer and keeping it at bay. The real question is how can you get the tumor load down low enough and the defense mechanism of the tumor suppressed enough that the immune system can be active and, and carry on. It sounds as if this has much more potential for a vaccine because if you can prime the immune system to make sure that only a certain amount of cancer can be sustained, I mean, that's eventually going to help us out. I mean, granted, no cancer is the best, but if you're in a situation where your immune system simply isn't working as well as it should, even a smaller amount is going to be more beneficial than, unfortunately, that uncontrolled growth that we see. Absolutely, and I think that that's exactly where we're headed. We're trying to get to a stage where your body can take over its defense. You don't need to have outside intervention. The immune system within your body is capable of dealing with the changes in the cancer. That's really, I think, the goal that we'd like to get to because then the tumor won't have an impact on your body anymore. You, know, you, you always have defective cells in your, in your body. For sure, that happens all the time, and it's being cleaned up by the immune system. We just got to get back to the stage with a tumor that it's back at that early stage where it can't suppress the immune system and can be kept under check. So do you think then that regardless of whether we're using viruses or CAR-T, as we move forward towards the idea of having that vaccine, is this going to be something that we might have at the early stages of life? Or could this be something that we're seeing like we do with shingles, where after a certain point in your life where we know the immune system is starting to become weaker, we introduce this as a preventative measure? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of people looking at that question and the fact that our immune systems age just like the rest of our bodies and are there ways to reboot it, to rejuvenate it so it's back to your younger younger stage. Uh, I mean, obviously, that's not the whole answer because as we discussed, you know, young people sometimes get cancer and some, even children do sometimes. So, But the majority of cancers arise in older people where the immune system has gotten weaker. So there are people out there now that are doing uh, experiments in animals uh, and even some early clinical studies trying to find ways to boost your immune system uh, so that it can get back to where it used to be and, and be able to fight the cancer and, and, and like a young person might do. And that involves using certain kinds of hormones and what we call cytokines to really reestablish your immune system back to its younger years. It's Ask Class time, and today we're going to give a reality check to a treatment that has been getting lots of headlines and hype, stem cell therapy. It has been touted as being a miracle cure for all ailments, including cancer. But as our guest teacher points out, this may be the case in the future, but not for now. His name is Riam Shama, and he is the founder and CEO for IntelliSTEM Technologies. They are working hard to realize the dream of stem cells for cancer, but know we are still a long way from reaching that goal.
Everybody has heard about stem cells, but most people don't actually know what they are. So let's just start with what are stem cells? Stem cells are a type of cells in the body that have the capacity to regenerate its own and other cells in the body. Now, stem cells is a large umbrella that includes multiple types of cells. The first type of cells, and those are the cells that we heard about in the news long time ago with the sheep dolly, if you remember, are called totipotent cells. So those cells are taken from the first four divisions of an embryo, and those ones have the capacity to create a full human. Now, the second type of cells is called pluripotent cells. Those cells have the capacity to create organs in the body, and they have an amazing potential in medicine because they can solve problems like amputations, hopefully even strokes and paralysis. Now, the challenge, again, is those cells may have to be taken from placentas and embryos. Until 2012, where a scientist called Yamanaka won the Nobel Prize by taking any cells and genetically engineering it to create those cells, breaking this barrier and opening the door to be able to treat multiple diseases with easily accessible ethical cells. Now, the third kind is the kind of that most of the scientists work with is called multipotent cells. And those are cells that can create only specific type of tissues. For example, we work with what is called mesenchymal stem cells. And those cells can create in the lab cartilage, bone, fat tissue, muscles, and tendons. So they have so much potential in regenerative medicine from that angle. But those cells as well, if you put them in a human, they act differently. So they act as cells that interact with the immune system, which told us that we have a very long way to learn in the field. And on that last note, you mentioned immunity. And obviously, when we talk about cancer treatment, we're talking about figuring out how to work with the immune system. So does that mean that stem cells could possibly be used against cancer? The challenge that we face is our lack of knowledge in the field. You know, those stem cells, mesenchymal stem cells were understood, I want to say, in the 19, only in the 1980s to 1992, and they showed that those cells are anti-inflammatory. So they are used mainly for diseases like graft-versus-host disease. They can be used for rheumatoid arthritis, and no one thought of them as cells to attack, to direct, to interact with the immune system. If you treat them with a little bit of different cytokines, they start acting differently. Indeed, they start acting as a pro-inflammatory cells, meaning they start interacting with the immune system to start triggering defense methods, either against cancer or against infection. What we did in that instance, we were hoping for that synergy. We were hoping to take the capacity of those mesenchymal stem cells because they're able to regenerate, they're very easy to work with, and they can travel in the body and interact with all the other cells. So we were hoping that those will help us better understand cancers and infections. But what we ended up with actually far exceeded our expectations. So those cells, not only they were able to activate the immune system against cancer, they were able to specifically attack that cancer. So think of them as shedding the light on the cancer all the time and screaming 
and uh, pushing all the immune cells, so natural killer cells and T cells to attack and destroy cancer specifically. And that was something that was never done in the past. That all sounds very interesting, but it also sounds like it could be troublesome as well. Because when you're messing with the immune system, you are never quite sure what's going to happen. Did you do anything to make sure that these cells basically do what they're supposed to do as opposed to, say, just throwing something in there and seeing what happens? Absolutely. So as you know, and as you mentioned, there is always a trade-off in, in the body. It's uh, You never create something that is risk-free in medicine. Now, because of this, we decided to dive into a nine-month analysis of the cell's capacity and interaction. And it's a learning process. What we discovered that the cells and that's the beauty of, of mesenchymal stem cells. Once they are in the body and they activate the immune system against the cancer, that comes at a sacrifice of their own life. Think of it like bees. Once they sting, they're going to die. So those cells, we discovered, once they flag the cancer, they also flag themselves. So then the body attacks them and kills them while at the same time killing the, cell, the, the, the cancer. Wait a minute. So this is like a kamikaze strategy? Yes. In that sense, we believe it is that kind of, 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 of mission. Uh, now, now, the beauty of that mission is uh, those cells are not of a value because we inject them. So meaning we're okay with them being sacrificed as long as they serve the purpose, which is showing uh, the cancer. And that's why we started doing safety studies in the animals. And indeed, we had very, very good results. It showed that those cells did not alter the physiology of the healthy cells. They did not create damage. They, in a sense, educated the cells of the immune system uh, about the cancer, and then they paid the price. That's really interesting. So when you look at it from a cancer treatment perspective, I could see this working. What I'm wondering is, could this be translated into developing a vaccine so that we have an immune system that's ready to respond should any of those cells inside our body decide to betray us and turn cancerous? Indeed. So, so the technology that we looked at was the sense of creating a, a vaccine against cancer. But I'm the first person to, to, to acknowledge actually that cancer is a very, very tricky disease. It's a master of disguise. It has methods to what we call immune escape. It avoids the immune system and it tricks it. So the challenge was with, for us, and it's something we are working on right now, and we're actually even asking other collaborators to come and work with us because we understand the task is massive, is cancer does not have a one a known antigen that you can target. You know, we talk always about that magical bullet, but it doesn't exist. So in reality, to translate this to treatment, we either need a breakthrough to be able to identify that one target that allow those cells to create a vaccine, or the approach we wanted to look at as well, which is, is coming in the, in the next few years, is the personalized medicine approach. What would you say to the listener about the use of stem cells right now to be able to combat or even prevent cancer? So first thing I tell people when they want to do this is, and, and I come out of compassion because I myself lost my mom uh, uh, to cancer 
And we, we ran into this desperate last few minutes where anything to help is a potential uh, hope. I tell them usually to speak to as many physicians in the field who have no bias. You know, if someone is selling you something, they're probably is, are benefiting from something. There are, you know, to be fair also to this community of, of scientists and doctors who do clinical trials, who do studies and, uh, on stem cells. There are studies around on stem cells in different fields. And they exist taking specific patients, uh, trying to help, but it's not that kind of, you know, let's take your money and we're going to cure any problem you come with. Because this is nothing like this. There's nothing like this in medicine. Well, that's it for this week's SASCast. I hope it has given you even more hope that we will one day end our long and hard-fought battle against cancer. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming. And if you're just finding us today, please check out our other episodes on Parkinson's disease with Curious Cast's own Larry Gifford, host of the podcast When Life Gives You Parkinson's, Diagnostics with Lisa Sanders, the inspiration behind the show House MD, and Pandemics, in which we interview one of John Bell's student mates and flu expert himself, Earl Brown. We want to show our gratitude by taking your questions and answering them on the show. Send me a tweet at JATetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. I'm really enjoying the ones I'm getting, and I look forward to receiving even more. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week, and as always, make sure to show them some sass.